HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand. So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible guides to say, here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events. I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable. We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand. The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment. Don't miss Meat and Three, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. Today is Tuesday, June 5th, 2018. We've got some great guests joining us tonight, including Sarah Howard from Denver's Black Project. How Hi. are you, Sarah? Great. How are you? Great having you out here. So you're out here for a couple of days doing some promotions? Yeah. Just launching, having fun, and meeting people. That's great. And then you were also out at uh, Ivan Rahm and we get Kat. How are you, Kat? Introduce yourself. Hi, Kat from Ivan Roman in the Lower East Side. So you guys have been hosting a lot of different specialty uh, brewers and, and events and tastings in the city. Yeah, having a lot of fun. It's great to have, you know, beers like this in the shop and happy to have Sarah. You're doing a great out. job. <laughs> That's awesome. And legend? Not so much legend. Just guest when you can't get anybody else. <laughs> B.R. Roya, Shelton Brothers and Force. This is a pretty special lineup. Um... You know, everyone's into sour beers, but we're going to talk specifically about uh, spontaneously fermented beers. Is that it, Sarah? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, this is the old school. I'm, I'm expecting to hear about some cobwebs. Spiders. And spiders, kind of like <laughs> Cantillon. We'll get there and really 
we'll, we'll debunk the myth because when we, we met with uh, Chad from Crooked Stave, I, I thought it was all cobwebs, and it's not. So uh, we got a lot to talk about. You check us out at Beer Underscore Sessions. Uh, and check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. So um, let's go. So spontaneously fermented beers. So let's, a um, little background. So Sarah, you guys started, you're in Colorado. Yep. Uh, in Denver. Yes. And uh, you said you originally had a brewery that was, uh, you call it a clean beer brewery. Yep. So we were doing, um, the whole concept behind Former Future was taking historical styles and ideas and kind of reinventing them in our own way. So we had an 1800s recipe porter that we did as a salted caramel porter. That was kind of our mainstay that we had on all the time. And um, we were doing these Black Project beers on the side, um, kind of secretly in the back. Nobody really knew what we were doing. And uh, won a couple of GABF medals um, in 2014 and 2015 and decided that we wanted to do that full time. Oh, so you, you won the medals for the Black Project yep. stuff. Yeah. Ah, so our, our first and second beers that we ever brewed as experiments, basically, we won medals for. That's great. You know, it's really cool that, that, so it's kind of like trial and error, you figured out what worked. Yeah, absolutely. And then was it the same facility, or did you open a new facility? Or? Same facility. Um, what really kind of uh, had us, you know, changed our minds about what we wanted to do is we were able to open the barrel uh, cellar, basically on site. We were able to sublease some extra space, and that's what really kind of spurred us forward. That's great. And along the process, so you, at some point you met uh, some Shelton Brothers people. Yeah, which has helped you grow and yeah, we met them um, at Beer Meets Wood, a beer, the Beer Advocate Festival up in Portland, Maine, and um, just they really liked our beer, and we just have just had a great experience with anything and everything <laughs> that they've done for us. So, PR. So a uh, little background: you're here with uh, this crew. You're doing a tasting tonight at Spite and Dival, mm-hmm. and last night you guys were at Ivan Ramen. Did a beer dinner over at Ivan Ramen. Yeah, yeah. A little a little backstory from your your perspective on the the Black Project beers. Well, I mean, you know, we, we do put some domestic breweries through our distribution chain. So, you know, this is if particularly if it's whether it's a smaller brewery, uh, they might not have a lot to send. And for them to actually have someone involved in dealing with distributors and doing the invoicing and the orders to distributors around the country, it's it can be a lot of work and, and manpower. So what we do is just it's almost as if we're, we're importing, but it's domestic. So they'll ship to our warehouse and then we farm it out to our distributors around the country that we work with. And they all have a lot of you know similarities to often to our European brewers, particularly the, the traditional ones, whether, you know, it's spontaneous fermentation, uh, using some, you know, barrels, um, you know, it's, it fits in very well into our portfolio, um, you know, sort of a family of whether it's, you know, new world, old world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just a nice compliment to have these, these, these American brewers who are doing things, for example, like Cantillon has been doing for, for many, many years, but doing it here and adapting it, whether it's, you know, Jester King doing it in Texas uh, adapting uh, American wild yeasts to um, to to their beers. You know, Sarah, you guys are I, you're kind of cool. You know, if we, if we can use are that we? term, no. <laughs> there are cool breweries and cool brewers. You're doing something a little different, and you associate with the right people. Like you're here in town at Ivan Ramen and and Spite and Dival. You know what what sets you apart? Because you're doing something special. And what are some other breweries around the country that you feel like you associate with? Oh, great question. Um, so. Um, I think what sets us apart is we are not using any yeast, any, um, pitched yeast at all in our beers. So everything is completely spontaneous, even in up to the bottle conditioning process. We're using only what's already in the beer to ferment the beer in the bottle and condition it. Um, Jester King is definitely, I mean, we love those guys. We get along with them very well. We brewed a collaboration beer with them, uh, recently it hasn't been released yet, but, um, that's in the works as well, both on their end of things and then at our brewery as well. 
So um, I, we love those guys. That's great. And then uh, Kat, so I've been wanting to meet you because you've been hosting so many cool things at Ivan Ramen. So what makes uh, craft beer go so well with ramen? I mean, I think it's just a... That's a, a general question. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wanted to ask that. You know, beer beer loves ramen and ramen loves beer. Um, I think it's a, it's the third wheel of great hospitality and great food. Um, your beverages should be right there with everything else. But, uh, you know, I think just it's about relationships. It's about being passionate. It's about artisan stuff. And, you know, things like Kirkus Dave or Jester King, um, it's great to, you know, have that on the New York market. Great to crush. But it's just, you're, st- you're still breaking boundaries because, I mean, I know you had a Crooked Stave tap takeover at a McKellar yeah. dinner. Yeah, I mean, having Chad and his whole team um, in the shop was really fun. Uh, sour beer keeps your palate really fresh. There's a lot of fat and a lot of carbs and a lot of spice and a lot of things going on in every bowl of ramen. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really about just partnering with people that are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. So um, you did the dinner last night with, with Sarah from Black Project. Did you talk to her in advance, or, or, or is that the first time you met her? <laughs> she came up to me in Copenhagen and said, Hi, I'm Catherine Ivan-Robin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, and Sarah was having a tough time with her. I was having a breakdown. <laughs> with a keg. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we never, we never met. BR just reached out to um, our team and said, Hey, these guys are we're about to get a really crazy beer drop from Black Project and we jumped all over it instantly. We I mean I knew about Sarah just from following being a real good Instagram creeper. Um <laughs> and we uh yeah, we we I mean we couldn't wait. We were super excited. We you know, still have beer. Come drink it. <laughs> all right. Yeah, but it was great. It was great. And, and hopefully and Sarah, let's talk about more the evolution of your beer. So you started with those two experimental beers, you won GABF awards. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're spontaneously fermented, what's your philosophy of beer? How, how do you make a beer? You kind of let it happen, and each one's different. Have you ever replicated the same beer? So we have a brand. We have brands that we replicate. So Dreamland is kind of our base golden sour, um, and that the batch changes every time. So the blend is going to be a little bit different every time. It's going to taste a little bit different just based on where each part of the blend is in the process and development. So we, I mean, Casey Brewing is a good example of this um, out in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And, you know, he'll have the same brand, but it's going to taste different every time. I think people have enjoyed that from us because they like to taste them side by side and kind of see the progression, see where it is in the bottle, how it's changed in development in the bottle. Um, It's it's really fun. Keeps it fresh. It's like wine in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Different vintages. Yep. Different treatment. People are like, oh, I like batch one better, or I like batch three better, or so. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Or for my first time, this is my first uh, black project. So what what is my first beer that I'm so drinking? So you were drinking uh, Cygnus. Um, so Cygnus, uh, we do different uh, fruits with Cygnus, but it is a blend of one, two, and three year uh, beer. And so similar to a goose, we don't call it goose, but similar. And um, we do it with different fruits. So this was the first one we did with Montmorency Cherry. And we actually recently released this for the second year, uh, did two different blends, one with, um, well, they're both with Montmorency and Balaton cherries, just a little bit lighter cherry with each blend. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones that we do every year. Beautiful cherries, beautiful fruit, 
It's great. Awesome. Kat, what do you think of it? Yeah. It's I my mean, first it's Black amazing. Project beer ever. Yeah. When I, I mean, I tasted uh, some beer at NBCC that Sarah made, and it was, yeah, it, it's, it's cool. I mean, I love fruited sour beers, so it's right up my alley. Um, and I love cherries. <laughs> so mm. this is, yeah, definitely. Beer, how does this fit in with your other sour beers? I know you guys have Cantillon, which I can't get anymore. <laughs> No one you can. can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you still have Dry Fontaine, in, don't you? Yeah, we no, yeah. yeah, we have Dry Fontaine and Cantillon. Um, no, it's it's nice. I mean, the one thing I find a lot of American sours tend to be very one dimensional. You know, it's just it's all about the sour, and it's just whether it's the lactic or the acidic acid. It's just very. It's it's you know it, it reminds me of the early days of Imperial IPAs where it was 100% hops and alpha mm. acids and there was really no malt backbone underneath it. Um, and the nice thing about the Black Project beers is that there's a lot going on. You know, you get some notes of the wild yeast, you get the fruits, but it's not just one thing screaming at you and it's very balanced, very nuanced. Totally. Thank you. That's <laughs> think, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's always, I and mean, when we were talking about philosophy of beer, I think that's one thing that's always been at the forefront for us is balance and finding balance in sour. And we don't want a beer to be sour just for the sake of being sour. It should be sour as part of the whole. That should be a f- part of the flavor, not all of the flavor. And when you were first doing these experiments, I mean, were there inspirations? I mean, had you been to Belgium? We had not been to Belgium. My partner James and I recently went there last year. So, um, yeah, about a year and a half ago now. And we actually were able to meet with, like, Pierre Tolkien and uh, a few of the others. And, um, yeah, that was definitely a really cool learning experience. But we had not been there. We actually had um, the the beer for, I think, both of us that really sparked this love of sour beer was New Belgium's La Folie. And I think a lot of sour producers will tell you that. Like, I've heard that more than once. Um but that was the first time in my life that I had a, a beer that would just like blew my mind. Like I'd never had anything like that before. Um, and they, I, I love what they're doing. That's over. really cool. So you're getting inspirations now from Colorado. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so the cherries, they're from Colorado. Yeah. So oh, I'm sorry. No, they're not. The cherries are actually from Utah. So just over so. the border of the Western Slope. Um, I didn't know this, but the state, the state fruit of Utah is the cherry. They're supposed to make the best or have the best cherries in the country, but wow. they're beautiful. Yeah. But it is it's cool generation wise that you, your inspiration was a new Belgian beer. Mm-hmm. And um that's very interesting. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that how current American craft beers are int- you know influencing newer breweries. Well, I mean I, I mean I am very new to the beer scene, but I think just the fact that there's so many home brewers and there's so many people, you know, playing around with stuff, um there's so much freedom, it just creates a really diverse um undercurrent and then it's like feeding straight into amazing beers um, and amazing. I mean, the more diverse it is, the more stuff people are trying, the more mistakes you make, the more you learn. And, you know, that's it's what's driving, I mean, the, the upper crust, you know, lots of experimenting and and just being passionate about it. I like it. that. So it's not, you're not only a cool brewery, you're an upper crust brewery. Ooh, maybe. <laughs> you know, I, it happens in a lot of industries. Wine, cider, everybody wants to differentiate themselves. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying why your product's better, why it's more handcrafted, why it's worth more. And it's a lot different than when we talk about, you know, arguing about macro, you know, brands. There is something that, that's going on. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and talk more about that on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. You up for
think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long-chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. David, nice selection of music. I think that next uh, week, June 12th, we have a heady, heavy metal and craft beer theme. Just so you know, if you like that kind of music. Yeah. And um, salmon, Alaska salmon, uh, big shout out to them, Wild Alaska salmon. Makes me think of the beer we just had. So that, that first Black Project beer, I, I like a, a sour beer. I think that could have done well with a Wild Alaska salmon. <laughs> what do you guys think? Pairing wise, it's interesting. Yeah, we need some salmon. I like salmon, I like especially wild salmon. I think it goes great with so many great beers. So that's something we can think about another time. But right now, um, we're just starting talking about the you know, in, in the whole industry, whether it's I call them good ciders or fine wine or, or craft beer, there is a debate about you know, what's the value, you know, what you can charge. But I feel like more and more. You know, there's independent craft breweries, but you really need to talk about the handcraftedness, the extra things you're doing, whether it's bottle aging, that make that product worth more. Because mm-hmm. this is the big thing about com- you know competing with the macro brands. You're not going to be able to sell the same price as a Bud, whatever you do. And if you are, we're not buying that product. But I, there is a consumer market out there that wants a better product, whether they're going to Ivan Ramen or Spite and Dival. You know, we're, we're not looking for a cheap beer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've thought about that because you're... you're your marketing and your actual product, it's, it's a very high quality product. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that comes up for us um, often. We do charge, um, and we charge a lot for our beer, and we've gotten a little bit of backlash um, about that. But I mean, I think you have to, you have to know. Well, for one, you have to know what you're putting in the beer. And I know for like, I'll use the mock limit for instance. We had at Ivan Ramen. I think we'll have tonight as well. Um, that beer. <laughs> The amount of work that goes into that beer is so much and just the amount of like man hours to process everything and the amount of loss because we're doing a free run of the juice from the grapes. Um, and, you know, so you have to know what you're putting into it and, and know what, what the value is to you or to somebody else, you know, your, your customer market as well. And then for beer, the way, way you guys market beers based on price or well, I mean, handcraftedness? Yeah, I mean, that's and that's a very difficult thing is that, you know, we, people are always, you know, we often get, oh, you know, Shelton Brothers are so rich because look at what they charge for this beer. And, you know, we tend to be very modest in, in our markups. I mean, there's some beers, we make very little because we feel this beer is something we want to make it accessible to people. It's coming to us from wherever, you know, the freight costs are, are very high, the customs are very high. Um, and then, you know, just the, the, the process itself, whether it's, it's not an IPA that's turned that can be turned out very quickly. It might be barrel aged. It might have been sitting on, on in real estate, essentially in a barrel or in a tank for six months, a year. Uh, and that's beer that's, that's money that's had been invested into the beer itself for the brewery that the brewery can't sell and get their money until they actually release it. Um, so it's, 
you know, there's a lot more going into it. I mean, the same thing where a 10% beer, essentially the ingredients cost just about the same as a 4% beer, but people think, oh, well, you know, I don't want to pay $12 for a glass of imported, you know, 4% session beer when I can get an imperial stout uh, for the same amount of money. But, you know, the, the base ingredients cost about the same. So it's very hard for people to understand, or they just don't realize, I should say, what goes into, particularly when you're talking about older or, or beers that tend to require aging, that there is a lot of money going into it on the brewer side that then, you know, that's, that's what we are charging for, you know, to our distributor who then, you know, pays uh, charges to the to the accounts of the shops and the bars. And Kat, do, do you, you seem like you're able to carry like really high quality beers at Ivan Ramen. Does that ever come up? Like the cost of beer? Do you feel like your customers just want a better beer? I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it starts first with education. Like if you're, if your guests know, you know, what they're drinking. I mean, we all understand the concept of rent. I mean, living in New York, it's like, those bottles got to pay rent, you know, for the three years that they're hanging out in the brewery. They're, you know, taking up space or taking up time. Where you're opening some, you know, every month to see what is this doing? Where is it? Like, how much bottle conditioning does this need? Like, how much more time should we let this? You know, it's like these slow beers. It's like, you know, yeast and sugar need time to hang out and play and develop. And I think it's, I mean, for us, it starts with just you know, mentoring our staff, what's a Lambic, what's a Goose, like what's, you know, what are these different styles, why do they take so long, why are they so expensive, um, and the guests, you know, they, everybody loves to learn, I mean, whether they're asking questions or not, there's ways to subtly um, get people excited about, you know, all the love and um, the prep that goes into these beers, it's like years, 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 um, and Sarah, you, you said, this next beer we poured, what did you say when you poured it for us? <laughs> I said, I haven't tasted this one in a while. <laughs> so that tells first what the beer is, and then, you know, what went into making this beer, and um, the time, and yeah, so this, value. This one's really fun, actually. So this was our first experiment with lupulin powder, uh, or cryo hops, uh, they're called as well. So basically, it's the lupulin gland from the hop that is cryogenically frozen off into, like, a powder form. Um, and it's it's basically all of the the beautiful hoppiness from the hops without that grassy kind of vegetal character that goes with hop hop leaf or hop pellets. Um, so this was our first experiment with that, and this is with uh, Simcoe and Mosaic hops or lupulin powder. And uh, the base on this is just a sour wheat. So very simple. We're actually serving the base beer tonight, um, called Cloudmaster. Uh, that's the base for this beer. So super light, low alcohol, drinkable. Some people hate that word, but it is. <laughs> Nothing but wrong with it. You have to drink it. <laughs> a lot of care and crafting. Quaffable. Yeah. We'll go back to that afterwards. But, um, you know, going back to, so, you know, w- when you guys decided to just become Black Project and just do your spontaneous fermented beers, what were some of the first challenges and positive responses you got and how that really, you know, the early days? Uh, so when when are you talking about when we first transitioned over to yeah, Black Project? Yeah. Um, so the first hurdle that we first had to overcome was really um, space, because we have to park mm. the barrels somewhere. Um, so we were able to get that second space or that the second part of our space, and uh, that was really what spurred us forward to start it. But then we had to get really creative with how we were going to make beers. And I mean, we're limited on space, um, and and we have a lot of beer that's just kind of sitting there for long periods of time. So James really started getting creative with how can we stick within our limits of spontaneous fermentation only, 
but do things a little differently. So we use these um, square totes. A lot of breweries use them. They're called Hoover totes. They're just these big stainless steel vessels. And we use those as Soleras. So they're never fully emptied all the way. We empty it usually a third of the way to make a beer, rebrew on top of it, and then we let that sit for another eight months and develop. Um, but they take up less space? Take up less space. They can be stacked if you have smaller ones. Um, so that's really been a way for us to do that and stick with an, again, with the boundary of spontaneous fermentation. Um, our motto has kind of over time become research and development in spontaneous fermentation. So how did you figure out that you would use the Hoover jugs instead of... Uh you know, wood cast. So we use, we use wood too, uh, but this is just a way for us to have more volume. Um, and then we, what we'll do is oftentimes once that beer is done in the stainless, we'll transfer it to a barrel with fruit or grapes or, you know, 20 pounds of fresh leaf hops and let it do its thing for another few months. But in your R and D, like how did you find that? Oh, I mean, just the um, catalog or their no, I don't remember how we um, told you about it. I don't remember how we started using those. I think we saw them at another brewery, but uh, you see them all over the country now. I know Modern Times has some of them. There's breweries all over the country. Uh, Speciation, actually. I know we're going to try one of their beers. They use them. So they've been a, an easy way for brewers to get kind of that volume. But also you can let it age in there for a long time and develop and change. And so That's cool. What do you think about this beer, Kat? I like it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it is very drinkable for sure. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about hops, especially in the New York market, it's, you know, the double dry hop everything and, um, which is beautiful and, and there's definitely a place for that. But I think, you know, with these, with like talking about slow beers and spontaneous stuff to let those hops kind of just do something that you're not controlling and it's like, okay, like get in that bottle and, and I'll see you in eight months. And yeah. It's like, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm, and I love how this is still hoppy. It's not bitter. It's there's just, a lot of hop character. I'm surprised mm-hmm. of the amount of hop character that's still in there. Mm-hmm. Cause I think also, I mean, the use of lupulin powder is fairly new and I don't know really what's the oldest package version that's out there of this. I mean, so many mm. of these are drunk fresh right away if they're not kegged. Yeah. We always think like anything that's hopped, Drink it now, like yeah. hurry, hurry before. But those. I mean, there's it's 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 really remarkable how how bright the hop character still mm. is. Yeah, and I, I was just checking out the bottle. This was bottled April 9th, two thousand seventeen. Wow, wow. I think it tastes great. That was a yeah. long time ago. Amazing. But that, maybe okay. that maybe that's it. You know, it's like <laughs> good products take time, and that's probably why the character is still there. It wasn't like you knocked it out. I mean, I don't want to knock anyone, but there are some breweries turning out IPAs, and what's the shortest time you can turn out? A real hoppy IPA from eleven days, maybe eleven days. Uh, yeah, so that's what's going on. But those those don't really keep that well. I'm yeah. I don't. You don't know. We'll tell you in one year. <laughs> well, that's it. We're just trying to advocate for the the fact that it takes time, and I, I do think it's an important conversation that's not happening in the Brewers Association and with the independent craft label. I think it's a first step, but I mm. think that you have to start. You know, let's call it um, elevating. Uh, cer- certain breweries It happened in California Robert Mondavi When he was First started in the 60s His family was R.W. Mondavi They were a jug wine producer Everyone in the world Thought California Made cheap jug wine mm. And he went out And changed it Single handedly Put it in French bottles Competed against the French And now California wine Is some of the most Expensive in the world So I do feel that All these industries Definitely uh, cider and, and beer Still have that challenge Ahead of them Because so much of beer That you get Is cheap mm. And, I, and I, I've had guests On the show Writers who take issue with the fact that I prefer, I like fancy beer. You know, I, mean, I think we haven't even defined it yet. I call it cool beer, fancy beer. Um, 
so I don't know if you want to keep talking about well, that. I mean, or... I think there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with a well crafted, mass produced beer, whether it's you know a regional brewery. Um, I wouldn't go so far as say that I know there are people who like their macro lagers, and uh, I, I, I I will drink them. But um, <laughs> I you know there's there's nothing wrong with that, but I think people need to understand the difference and what goes into them, um, and tangentially also the fact that you've got these big breweries who are now buying up smaller breweries who are able to purchase someone who is doing wood and barrel aged beers and sell them at a much lower cost than the brewery would have originally been able to do when they were independent because they're able to put them through this distribution chain and they might be taking not quite a loss, but their markup on, on the beers that actually take a long time is not as high. Uh, you know, they're making their money on mm-hmm. their, their, their big, big, big brands that are selling billions and billions of, uh, of, of cases of. And so that kind of undercuts the market where people are like, well, why can I find now this, this beer, this sour beer that's been aged for 12 months that's half the price of this other one mm-hmm. and it's perhaps as good or almost as good and people you know they don't realize like part of that goes through the whole distribution chain I think that just adds more confusion to the customer too I mean especially when we're talking about sour beer um, a couple years ago in Denver you wouldn't see on a menu a, a sour beer that was aged for three years differentiated in any way from a kettle sour not that they both don't have their place because they absolutely do, but I mm. think over time, and I've seen this across the country, more and more places are starting to advertise, like, this is how this one was made, this is how this one was made, just so that people understand price difference, which is a huge part of that, I think. That's well, and as Kat was saying, education as well, yeah, you totally. know, whether it's on the, the server level at a restaurant or in shops and people, you know, on menus, to know, yeah, the difference between what is a kettle sour and what is a spontaneously fermented beer and... To the difference and, and how you can turn out something really quickly as opposed to the other one that takes a long time. So, Kat, your event last night, how many different Black Project beers did you have? <clears throat> we had uh, two available on draft. We had Starfire and Shadow Factory, mm-hmm. the Blackberry, Black Current. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, we had um, five packages. The Jato, which I was well lovingly calling Jato. <laughs> I like your pronunciation better. <laughs> and then by the other night, it was Yato. <laughs> With a Latin twist. Um, and then we had the Montauk, um, which I, I think I think Spiten has everything that we had. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so you made so a beer called go. the Montauk. Yeah, so that was a collaboration with Speciation. Uh, Mitch from Speciation used to work for us long, many moons ago. Uh, and so we did a collaboration. They released one version. We released another. So how do you think that Ivan Rahman did? Did they do a good job oh gosh. Of, rep- of representing the yes, beers? Like how absolutely. did they de- For you, Sarah, how did they describe the beers? What information did they put out there? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was the menu was very descriptive. And I mean, even the Shadow Factory was like so detailed. Was basically, <laughs> everything from Untapped that you could read about that beer was absolutely. on there. It was so great. No, it was wonderful. Such a good experience. So more information than less. Yeah, that's yeah. good, but that goes back to the yeah, education the most, piece. The most. If they don't want to read it, they don't. You know, customer doesn't have to read it. But. Just buy, just one just of drink. everything. Yeah, one of everything. Yeah. I like <laughs> hey, we're gonna take another short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher. 
or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Come a member, there's perks, and there's a new show, Meetin' Three. It's a new show, a uh, regular weekly news show, and sometimes there's clips from Beer Sessions Radio, so check it out. So another guest walked in, another brewer from Colorado. Please introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, Colin Jones from Wildwick's Brewing in Greeley, Colorado, about an hour north of uh, Denver. Thanks for letting me crash the party. Great, man. So you heard a little bit what we were talking about. Uh, what were you about to say? Well, I was just uh, uh, jumping off of Kat's point. Uh, when, when we're talking about edu- educating uh, uh, staff, uh, consumers, uh, in, in the land of Colorado, and these uh, kind of uh, spontaneous beers or barrel-aged beers, we're all charging um, what I think everybody considers an, an arm and a leg for it. But, uh, you know, if we can make that correlation as to ingredients and time and process and properly communicate that, um, you know, we can we can start to push those boundaries that – make the production of these high-end beers equitable for everybody involved. And and I think to be to have a su- successful program, it has to be equitable for, for all. I think earlier I met you, you said that you're making a cl- clean beer? We do we do everything. So at, at Weldworks, we brew what we love. Uh, we actually just won a, a bronze uh, for our wild sour at uh, World Beer Cup, so that was cool. We got a gold at JBF for our uh, barrel-aged imperial stout. And then we do a ton of IPAs and uh, kettle sours. Great. I, I actually wanted you on because um, I want to talk a little more about the state of Colorado. You know, earlier, Sarah, you said that your first, one of your first beers, the one we tasted was inspired by a new Belgian beer. Yeah. As opposed to a, a beer from Belgium. And uh, so let's talk about the state of Colorado. Mm. You know, I know there's, in, there's a special law where an independent wine, liquor, beer store is the only place that can sell beer, wine, liquor, which I know that Eric Wallace from Left Hand mm-hmm. has said really helped the development of, mm-hmm. and it seems like Colorado is like the most solid, unified craft craft brewing state. Yeah, I mean, I think people have varying opinions on that. Some people say California or Michigan or whatever, but um, I've, I've really, I mean, the, the whole argument behind keeping it that way, and this law recently changed, but that was because it's so easy to walk into your local liquor store and know your per, your buyer there. And there are so many buyers that are so engaged in the local community. And by changing that to allow grocery stores to sell, that definitely changes that landscape. You know, and it and the law right now in Colorado, you're only allowed to own one liquor store, but if you're a grocery store, you can have multiple chains. And so that didn't seem fair to a lot of people. It's kind of the argument for why why people were against it, so to speak. Yeah. Well, it's cool. There's a lot of stuff. Anything else you want to say about Colorado as a unique state? You know, I would say it's uh, uh, very economically wise to to do craft beer in, in Colorado. We have a governor that uh, used to run uh, a brew pub, and uh, so the laws are very much in, in uh, uh, spurning uh, new breweries and and uh, building up that that infrastructure. Uh, also led by Coors as well. I mean, we're talking macro. Coors has done a, a lot for uh, Colorado in terms of uh, making it a, a business-friendly climate. Then you have the old guys, the, the New Belgiums, the Odells, uh, that have really, and uh, the left hands as well, that have really worked so hard to get those laws where they where they need to be. At Weldworks, we self-distribute uh, all along the front range, and uh, that wouldn't be possible without everybody uh, ahead of us doing that legwork for us. So. 
I, I love Colorado beer. I really do. I mean, I've I've been um, kind of across the country and tasted beers, and and I think that on on a whole scale, Colorado makes the best beer in the country. Like you can go to so many. There's 70 breweries just in Denver city limits, and I mean, the quality of beer, you know, is just. I love. I, I think Colorado is a great beer state. It, it's Go funny. Colorado! Yay! Yeah, totally. And, it, and it's funny too. I mean, we, we're a very collaborative uh, environment in Colorado, but we're also very competitive. We all want to beat each other. At the end of the day, we do. And excellence. I mean, I think that spurs excellence. Spurs excellence. Like if you know you're around somebody mm-hmm. who's making really good beer, you're going to make really good beer. Um, you have no other uh, no other choice really. Um, and so, yeah, I think Colorado is just. Well, that's we're also it. good for the consumer who, yeah. if they realize like oh, wow, you know, I really like this beer and it's very good. And then learning like, oh, well, maybe that one's not so good. And then that kind of elevates the game of everyone if they realize like, oh, yeah, there's some really good beers I'm up against. Yeah. And if I want part of the market, I need to make sure that all my stuff is you know, dialed yeah. in and really good. And I think oh, there's so many breweries in Colorado that are all doing different styles of beer and all do, I mean, Beerstat Lager House, best lager maybe in the country oh, yeah. that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, hazy IPAs, Stout, Sours. I mean, Colorado's kind of become known as like the sour state. We've got Cricket Stave and... Um, Casey Black and Black Project purpose. and per- yeah, Purpose now and um, yeah, so many good beers. Um, what's the one that Peter Buchart just opened? Purpose. Oh, Purpose, yeah, purpose. and then um, Primitive. That's Primitive, what I was thinking yeah, of. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we're just kind of doing all doing all the things. You guys are cool. Let's Thank switch you. it back. So the styles of beer, you know, like for me in New York, maybe just me, I look to things like Belgian styles, like Lambic, and I feel like Lambic covers a, a lot of the kind of beers I like that are sour. And BR can correct me if I'm wrong. What what is the best way to describe an American lambic mm-hmm. that has like some wood aging that's aspiring to things like the dry fontanen, things that I I would seek out. Is there a label? Is there a name? I know that uh, Suarez Family Brewery up upstate New York likes to call some of his beers country beers. Hmm. Um, I don't know if there's any labels or names. You can't really so, say lambic here. Yeah, we don't we don't use the terms lambic or goose. Um, so actually, last year James, my partner, went over to Belgium with Jeff Stuffings from um, Jester King, and met with Horal, which is the Belgian producers. I, I don't see. Now I'm trying to think of the acronym, but it's yeah. basically the organization of lambic producers. Um, notably, Cantillon is not part of that. Mm-hmm. Of, on How do you say that in Belgium? Oral, it's H-O-R-A-L. Mm-hmm. You want to s- flash a little of your Flemish? <laughs> My Flemish is not so good. It's the, it's the French I've got. Right. Um, and so they went over there, and just to have a little a talk, basically, about what can we call this that's in, that's in line and respective to uh, Belgian Lambic and Goose producers, um, but that also makes it clear to the consumer, because, again, goes back to that education piece. And... Uh, they landed on method traditionnel, which could be used to describe champagne method or um, what else? I think there's like a cheese method that's also considered that or some a cider. Yeah, cider. Some like there's some other things as well. But um, so that's it's it's confused. It can it be is, confusing. I think, but I think I think I believe originally they had proposed um, method lamp, method, method goose, goose yeah. which I think. It both respects mm-hmm. the style as well as alerting people to this is not goose from the the Zen Valley. However, um, it is of that style. Mm-hmm. And when you look to places like Jester King, who are using the the native local yeasts and flora, um, and you know for Black Project, and you guys have a cool ship, and you're just letting the ambient yeasts do their work. That is what 
that style is. However, it's not from that region. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it is important for there to be the, the you know, like an AOC type of protection for place, you know, whether it's a Roquefort or a Champagne or, or Lambic. Um, but it is also good for the consumer to learn to, or to know that we are channeling, we are inspired by, and this mm-hmm. is our version of without trying to label it, you know, same with the Trappist beer. It's a Trappist style, but it is not from a Trappist monastery brewery. And I think the the BA, I mean, that's going to be a, a battle that's going to have to be fought for many years, I think, just in getting the BA on board and, and um, swag was started, the Sour and Wild Ales, Ales Guild and... Um, you know, it's kind of slow, slow going, I think, but or I think over time it's going to be something that's going to have to be looked at and changed because you look at the number of categories and the BJCP guidelines for, you know, wheat beer and there's, I don't know, 15, 20 categories. And then you look at sour beer and it's like seven, you know, <laughs> so and that can just be the whole I mean, you tasted two beers from Black Project that were completely different, but they're both it's, sour beers. It's not more. Of, yeah, it's a catch all. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. That's that. You know, when we, when we sat with Chad from Crooked Stave a couple months ago, he really broke down for him. He, he, makes, he makes sour, he makes brett, mm-hmm. and he makes wild beers. And he says he makes them all differently. They have different systems. But just alone, he considers those three, in his mm-hmm. brewery, three different types of beers. Yep. Yep. I mean, and we, we have, do the same thing. We have different ways that we make beer, different ages, that depending on what we're going to do with it. You know, different methods for adding fruit, depending on what the fruit is. So it's all completely different. I don't know if you can ever break down truly what all of those, each of those are, but I mean, it could be infinite, really. That's the way Ameri- of American beer, I guess. And uh, t- tell us about like a, you know, one brewing experience a couple years ago, either it just blew your mind or the, the best beer you made or something that totally fucked up. A little mm. bit of that process. Oh, man, that's a hard question. Um, never made. Mistakes. I would say okay. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, we made actually. So yes, our first beer that we ever made was a mistake. Um, so the first beer that we ever made, it was called Flyby. It was the beer that won the first GABF medal for us. Um, when Mitch was brewing for us, he was brewing a former future beer, and he accidentally put an extra bag of grain in the wort. And so in order to get the right efficiency, we had to add extra water. And um, anyways, so James said, we're going to put that on the roof and we're going to cool ship it on the roof. And we did that. <laughs> and we won a GABF medal for that beer. <laughs> and it was a total like off the off the thank wall. You, like, Mitch. let's just try it. <laughs> let's just try it. And I mean, and thank you, James, for having the foresight to say, like, we're going to do this with it and see what happens, you know. And it and it worked. Did you have a cool ship at that point, or you just we had of, two hmm. big stock pots, and we split our five barrel batch equally to both of those. They both were filled to the brim. We'd cover it with like a cheesecloth, <laughs> let it sit out overnight. We James and Mitch would be on the roof like lowering it down with ratchet <laughs> straps. Oh, it was the most. Oh my gosh. Uh, so going back, if you, if you use cheesecloth, then it's method tradition. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, we don't do it on this the roof anymore. We don't do it on the roof anymore. Now you're fancy. That's Colo- <laughs> no, that's Colorado. We're method. legit now. Yeah, yeah that's Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> Actually, Plan B up in up in the Hudson Valley, Evan Watson. I was there a couple of years ago, and he has this cool ship, and it's on like this kind of mm-hmm. rack and wheels. I love those. He guys. can actually roll it outside, so it gets the mm-hmm. floor from the the bees mm-hmm. and. They make great beer. We met them a couple of years ago at the Honey Summit in uh, Austin, Texas, and they are doing really cool things. He's cool. If you're in New York City, July 18th, we're having a low key event. New York City Brewers Choice. It's our eighth year doing it, and Evan Watson is the Grand Marshal. Hi, Evan Watson. Yeah. And what that means, he says, what does that mean? I said, well, have you ever been to Belgium and Cantillon in Belgium? He didn't answer me. So <laughs> That's as much fun with that. <laughs> so, yeah, let's keep it. So, one more. Another another crazy experiment or, you know, uh, uh, um, or the beer. How about the beers that took off? Like, 
you know, there's one, pick one of your little series that you particularly like and, and why you guys made that and why you've got So um, we have a beer called Stargate. Um, we It started out as this idea that we would do fruit in a spirit barrel and it's kind of become its one brand, which is peaches, uh, local peaches and rye whiskey barrels. Um, last year we did peaches and rye and nectarines and bourbon and we just blended those together. Um, but that's taken off for us. People love that beer. It's just got so much like, you know, the, the peach character, but then also like that vanillin kind of oaky character from the bourbon barrels. It's, it's one of my favorite beers that we do all year. That's cool. And then what do you guys have on at Spite and Dival tonight in Williamsburg? Quite a lot of stuff. Yes. Atlas, Mock Thor. Limit, Atlas, Thor. Montauk with Speciation. Jade. Yeah. Uh, Shadow Factory. Jado, Cloudmaster. I'm trying to remember which of the kegs. Uh, I think Magic Lantern. I believe it's Magic Lantern. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow night That's we're at As one. Is. That's well. great. So we, this, there keeps being these select beer bars in New York that you you guys go to usually. You know, uh, Ivan Rahman's newer. Spite and Dival's been there forever. Spite and Dival's, yeah. They're as having, is they're having their 20th now. anniversary. Yeah, As Is, I mean, it's a great place on the west side. There's not a lot on the west side for, for good beer. Uh, and As Is is really filled in, you know, in that neighborhood is filled in a niche that was, it was, it was sorely lacking there. Um, you know, Smiten's an old, they've been supporters of our, our beers forever since they opened. Uh, you know, Ivan Rum, and it's great to mix it up. So it's not just, oh, we're doing a tap takeover at a beer bar. Uh, it's nice to do when we can do something at a restaurant. And, you know, these type of beers are, are great to pair with the richness of the food there. You know, there's there's so many flavors going on. We were discussing before the show of, you know, the spices and the saltiness and, uh, you know, the just the, the fattiness. And these the sour beers tend to cut through nicely yeah. uh, through all that. And, you know, they complement each other. So it's, it's fun to do. You need to mix it up to do something a little bit different than aside from the regular beer bar route. Everybody loves noodles. Yes. It's so relatable. I mean, ramen is, it's easy to understand. It's easy to love. It's fun to, I mean, Ivan always calls it like the maverick Japanese food because it's, you can just do, you can put a slice of American cheese on there and it's like, it's still ramen. It's fine. <laughs> like, let's roll with it. So that's, it's, Great with beer. This beer is a speciation beer? Yeah, this is a speciation. We had a, um, a guest um, drop off a couple of bottles of their stuff, and I actually wasn't familiar with them um, until we took the Montauk, which is a, which is a collab that Sarah did with the, those guys. Um, this is called Starlifting, um, a fooder-aged golden sour ale with peach, raspberry, and vanilla. It's absolutely amazing. Speciation. That's our third beer. And Sarah, just going back to beer and food pairings, we talked about salmon a little bit. Yeah. Ramen. It must be fun for you going to these different places. And really, going in, you had never tasted the Ivan Ramen before with your beers, had you? No. It was it was absolutely awesome. Like, really, you can't go wrong with ramen, and that ramen was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> any any new flavor combinations that, that jumped out at you? or Maybe a seaweed beer. Do that. Seaweed beer, <laughs> a squid ink beer. Oh, yeah. That was an idea we had once, and no, that's maybe not a tomato umami bombs. Oh yes. Well, not not for the beer, beer, but I meant more for the, <laughs> the pairing. So we're like, brainstorming here. Was there? I meant more. Was there a food that you ate that made your beer taste differently, or see your beers you know, we in different really ways? Pair, I wasn't at least pairing foods with the beer necessarily, but yeah, I think just the flavor of the sour with the umami and the salt and everything. I mean, they do. They just work so well together. I killed I killed Sarah with food yesterday. She and ate every. Beer. I, I ate was sent her everything. 
<laughs> I'm overdue. And I'm really glad that you came on, Kat. Um, it's, I'd been following what Ivan Rama did on Instagram, and you, you messaged me. And BR, I know, has been bringing in a lot of great uh, brewers. Three guys. Um, we're going to close out. If everyone just goes around and says their full name and their affiliation, we'll start with BR. BR Rolio with Shelton Brothers Importers. Colin Jones with Weldworks Brewing. Cat Brackett with Ivan Raman. Sarah Howitt with Black Project. With some great radio voices, guys. That's awesome. Oh. And to keep up, uh, near <laughs> nycbrewerschoice.com, July 18th. The return of the Good Beer Seal Awards. So some of these great beer bars we're talking about. Some of them are Good Beer Seal bars. Some will be. We're going to re- reinvigorate that. BR has been on the, the commission for probably 10 years. So um, thanks, for everybody, for tuning in. This is a great you. show. Really got to appreciate uh, Black thanks, Project. Thanks, Jimmy. And um, thanks to our producer, Justin Kennedy, engineer David Tattashore, and I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me here on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Woo. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.